Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Dominic Jarak. Dominic is a 27-year-old from Slovakia who graduated last year from university with a degree in economics and management. He's currently working as an HR consultant, and he wrote a book called Economic Ignorance, which is currently being translated to English. He runs the Instagram account under the handle PraxEcon, where he talks about philosophy, politics, and economics. And he recently started posting on Twitter, too, under the handle PraxEcon1. We have a great conversation around politics, economics, philosophy, and more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And with that, let's welcome Dominic. Dominic, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't you go into a little bit of your background? First of all, you're in uh, Slovakia. Yeah, dive into that. Tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm from Slovakia. Last year, I'm 27 right now. Last year, I graduated uh, college. Um, I studied economics and management at one of uh, Slovakian universities. And uh, throughout my studies uh, is the uh, is where I came to uh, economics more more deeply you know in one of uh, our classes i stumbled upon the the past thinkers you know like uh, friedrich august von hayek uh, and that got me into the the austrian school of economics you know um so that's why i have been able to enjoy my studies more and um I guess you've already seen my uh, Instagram account. You know, I'm trying to post some economic stuff, you know, that I learned in college and also uh, by myself. Yeah. So basically, I enjoy um, economics, you know, and all the other disciplines that are also important when one is trying to get to know more about economics, you know. but other than that, I enjoy um, I enjoy my free time. In my free time, I'm trying to work out, going to gym. Um, I do box, you know, boxing. Um, I like nature. I like reading books, also guitar. Yeah, basically. Awesome. Uh, with schooling, is it similar to the U.S.? You have like K through 12 and then university? same thing um yeah basically we have a primary school you know then we have high school you know and after that uh, you can choose to go to college but uh, the the question about college is uh, different than in america um i um we have three years for bachelor's degree and then two more years for master's degree yeah and after that, you can also continue doing your doctorate, you know, PhD, which is three, which is three years. Yeah, I guess in the USA, uh, the the length of uh, specific level is is a little bit different, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's it's like four years for bachelor's degree, two more years for master's, and then typically eight years total for a doctorate. So four years yeah. after a bachelor's. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it varies, though. Obviously, people can do things a little bit faster or slower. Mm-hmm. Um, what got you interested in economics? What made you major in that? Um, actually, um, after after high school, um, 
I I started uh, the law school, but I I haven't been able to enjoy that. Uh, after after one year, uh, two semesters, I decided to quit. Uh, I decided to enroll in economics and management, which I thought would be more easier and more enjoyable for me. Uh, do you have any long-term goals with it? Like at at the moment, uh, at the point when I decided to change my program, change my field of study, I I absolutely didn't know where it would get me. You know, I, I was just looking for the way to obtain my degree, to to yeah. graduate college, and that was it. It was only later when I really got to enjoy economics. Yeah. Hmm. In the US, there's a phenomenon going on. I mean, it's been going on for a little while now, but a lot of people get degrees and mm-hmm. then they don't have many job prospects afterward. You know, we're sold the dream of, you know, you go to school and then you get a good job. Is it similar similar where you're at or uh, what's the job prospects like? And I, I'm sure it depends on the degree you get to. Totally, totally. It depends on the degree, but I would say it's very similar here in Slovakia. Okay. You know, many people think that uh, once they graduate college, once they obtain their degree, they would get open doors for the the uh, for their dream job, which is which is really not the case. You know. Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm, we can say that I'm working in the field that I uh, majored in, you know, but it yeah. took me months and months of searching, you know, for the job. And I also know about friends that are still searching after after one year of graduating. So I would say that it's very similar to, to the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. So you were in school when COVID happened. Yeah, that's right. Uh, what was that like at the university you were at? I mean, it was uh, pretty uh, same as elsewhere. Uh, we were doing um, hybrid system, you know. Um, one time we were in school in person, you know, and one time we were just uh, learning through Teams, you know. Yeah. And it's been going for quite a long time, actually. All, all the okay. all the lectures you know and exams also it was it was definitely interesting yeah was it harder for people or about the same um it's it's really hard to say because um there have been some pros and also cons of this of the system yeah. but on the on the average i would say that um the whole the whole experiment with this you know kind of thing um brought more more cons than pros i would say yeah yeah interesting um with covid you wrote a you wrote a book can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that and how that went yeah sure um so when the covid happened I I was just uh, I was just starting to get into economics more deeply, you know. I there there are there were still some things which I which I learned about, you know, 
um, and which I didn't understand. You know, I only understand them in retrospect. You know, but uh, at that time, you know, and also maybe 2021, 2022, I, um, I, I really got into the economics more, you know, and all this other stuff. And I saw what the COVID policies did to, to the economy, to the society, you know, um, there have been also some other socioeconomic problems that have been haunting the society long before COVID, you know, yeah. and I was just, uh, you know, there have been so much miscommunication, so much misinformation about all the, all the problems that I just got tired of this you know i thought that maybe i can yeah. write about this and um if someone asks me anything or if i engage in conversation about this kind of stuff i can just say that you know um i wrote about this you can you can read it and uh, i was just looking to to uh teach you know, lay people, you know, normal people, which don't know anything about this. You know, I was just yeah. trying to clearly explain what the roots of the problems are, what are the possible solutions, you know, and that's yeah. it, basically. Well, I think it's awesome that you wrote a book at your age. Like, that's very impressive. Um, Thanks. Can you give uh, some details about your views on the COVID? Like, my view is... I think the the things that were implemented to take care of COVID, to mitigate the harm of COVID, probably did more harm than COVID did. Um, like shutting down economies was mm-hmm. horrible, in my opinion. Um, I what I and I was telling friends this at the time. Um, I think small businesses are vital to economies and uh, they care more about their local communities. So I think we should care more about small businesses. And it seems like, or I, I think it's obvious that small businesses were hurt way more than the big businesses were. Amazon did just fine during COVID. Actually, they did way better than they normally do because the businesses that were closed down, every everyone just went to Amazon and the other big stores that you can just buy from online that the small businesses just weren't set up for. So why don't you share a little bit about what you think? Definitely. Um, basically, I have the same view as you. Um, when, when the COVID happened, um, we didn't, we didn't know about the, the possible outcomes of chosen policies. I, I get that we, as people, we are choosing in um, limited amount of uh, knowledge. You know, we, we don't know the all possible outcomes of our actions. I get that. But on the other hand, we, we should be able to look at also the implicit costs of all our actions. And as you, as you said, the chosen policies, which, which the government chose around the world, sometimes did more harm than than good and that's actually uh the the first three chapters of my you know uh, set book are about this are about covid are about the chosen policies um 
and how these chosen policies were at the end of the day the you know worse you know um yeah about about small businesses yeah they, they were hurt the most you know the big businesses uh did just fine but now we are in 2023 you know it all happened in 2020 2021 and now even even the big businesses have felt the the shock of these policies because of inflation because of thinning of profit margins we are nowadays we are all uh worse off because of these chosen policies uh two years ago or three years ago yeah definitely oh i think we saw pretty big problems with globalization too like we were heavily reliant on at least in the u.s and i'm sure many other countries had the same situation we were heavily reliant on countries like china for medicines and supplies and i think one of the big problems with that is when there's an emergency and every country needs supplies yeah. it's only natural that the the country with the supplies is going to take care it's a take care of its own people first leaving everyone else that's relying on those countries or that country to get whatever is left over i would uh, certainly agree and you know you mentioned china um china is currently um and has been for many many years the 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 supplier not even not only for america but for the whole world it it all started in china you know china uh tried to uh try to implement these interventionist policies these restrictive policies as soon as possible it shut down their harbors it shut down their production you know uh the stuff has hasn't been produced for uh, for a long time that's when the bottlenecks happened uh, that's when the restriction of uh, the supply happened it all it all served as a as a big supply shock to 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 the yeah. whole world uh it's uh, it basically started the whole rising of the prices you know but uh, when we speak about the the price rises we cannot uh we cannot forget about the the trillions of dollars and euros printed in such a in such a short span of time it it definitely it definitely had a uh, had a big big influence on the price rises that we see nowadays yeah 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 there's there's a price inflation and then there's monetary inflation and monetary inflation as far as i can tell heavily influences price inflation um i mean it seems only natural like if you're printing more dollars or euros you're going to have to increase prices eventually like prices are naturally going to go up because the money's value is just going to keep decreasing as you keep printing so what are the things that in your opinion could have been done differently like what are some things that could have been done differently with covid to have mitigated some of the issues that we saw um that's that's a good question it's 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 really easy to be uh to to have solutions after um 
after such a thing already happened, you know. But I think that the governments at the time were, you know, the governments are considered as the most competent uh, entities out there. Uh, The politicians, governments, public sectors, healthcare institutions should should have looked uh, on the implicit costs of their chosen policies. That's that's a fact, I think, because um, if if they continue to be such irresponsible, um, you know, people, then uh, we are we are all doomed, basically. So I I don't think the chosen policies, you know, chosen monetary policies, um, were were good, you know. Um, and like you said, we have uh, we have uh, we have had monetary inflation, which heavily, heavily influenced the current price rises. You know, the yeah. uh, the amount of dollars that uh, that has been printed in such a short time, it was just astounding. You know, I think around 30% of all the dollars ever created were created in in the span of one and a half year, you know, 2020-2021. This kind of shock is bound to have heavy influence on uh, price inflation. Yeah. And this, you know, many, many good economists have been warning about this at the time. It seems like nobody was paying attention to these economists. Many, not only Austrian economists, but also other other schools have been warning about this. I guess the the majority of people have been just afraid of the COVID, afraid of the slowing of the economy. They did, in their eyes, they did what was uh, what was desirable to do, you know. Yeah. Um, and even nowadays, these people don't feel like they did something wrong you know and uh until until now there have been any sorts of repercussions any sorts of discussions about the chosen policies as far as i know it's we are all acting like everything that that happened was was good all the chosen policies yeah it seems like people want to just move past it like let's forget about it let's forget about it let's move past it but mistakes were definitely made and if we just move past it then there's going to be another pandemic eventually like it's just naturally going to happen or or going to happen because of some accident and we're just gonna repeat the same behaviors if we don't reflect on it and figure out what went wrong i think one of the things that we could have done a lot better is looked at the data for how COVID was actually affecting people. Like we, we know that it primarily, like the people who got hit hardest were the elderly populations, you know, and children and young people, healthy people didn't really have many issues with it. Don't get me wrong. Some people did still, like I know people who weren't very old that did have issues with COVID, but it seems like it would have been better to have more vulnerable people shelter and and stay away from public places while everyone else went about their normal lives. That way the virus could have spread among the population of people who were healthy and can handle it 
And once herd immunity kind of kicked in for everyone else, then the elderly and and more vulnerable people could have come out and have been less at risk at that point. And then we wouldn't have all that economic destruction that we saw. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, like you said, not to uh, not to diminish the destructive power of the COVID uh, virus per se. It's been real. It's real. It's a real disease. You know, many many people died. Many people have yeah. been struggling uh, with long COVID long after their, you know, they they catch they caught the COVID. We yeah. we cannot forget about this. Of course, of course not. But um, yeah, the. People, people are dying also from other other sources than than COVID. People are struggling with other problems than COVID. We totally yeah. forgot about all the other problems that people face. You know, the, the governments declared the war on COVID. Basically, you know that there have been some gestures uh, about solidarity, about you know we, we need to stick together. We need to we need to do whatever it takes to beat COVID, basically. But whatever it takes is not the correct uh, kind of solution. And, you know, never, never because the human life and uh, also economics teaches about this. There are no final solutions on this world, only trade-offs. Like the economist Thomas Solon said, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. You know, if we choose to shut down the economy, to print billions of dollars and euros, and to fight COVID and to stay at home, to close businesses, we can choose that as a society. But we need to be prepared for the undesirable consequences of these actions. And these undesirable consequences of our actions were kind of well known, you know, at the time, I think, because we we have the whole human history to look at, and many of these restrictionist policies have been applied in the history with the subsequent undesirable actions, uh, consequences, I mean. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really bad, it's really irresponsible to be saying that we didn't know what our actions would bring. I think that's not, that's not correct, you know. Yeah. Well, the governments should have been more more open to dissenting views and opinions in the society. There have been many, many other opinions, but they they chose to uh, ignore them. They chose to persecute these people and uh, look uh, look at you know how the society, how the world is doing right now. Yeah, I think it's a big problem when you let fear dictate decisions too. And I, I agree with you. I, I think it's naive to believe that we didn't know better. Like I hear people say that quite a bit. Like, well, we didn't know at the time what the repercussions of these decisions would be, but the reality is many people were raising their voices. They were just being shut out by everyone else. They were being ignored because fear was the priority. Yeah, exactly. In the U.S., we have not had many major threats to our freedom, especially from foreign governments. We haven't had that. Um, In Slovakia, you guys have in more recent history. 
And I was kind of alarmed by the things I saw being said. I, I knew one person who was all about masks and lockdowns, and he mocked freedom. He called it free dumb, like dumb, like stupid. And I thought it was such a ridiculous thing to say because I, I'm thinking you're you're mocking the very thing that allows you to mock it. Like without that freedom, you can't make it that joke. Like you don't have the freedom to yeah. speak your opinion and call people stupid for not doing what you want to do. And I, I'm wondering in Slovakia, is there more of a connection to the need to freedom? Like, do people appreciate freedom more there, or was it kind of the same? Uh, it's a it's a very good question because when we look at the recent history, just uh, just thirty something years ago, Slovakia has been communist under under the communist rule, and one would expect in in such a country that people would be more inclined to freedom to liberty. But I wouldn't say it's such a uh, it's it's such an easy uh, thing to say. There are still many, many people which remember communism. You know, communism is uh, um, is a is a total uh, disease uh, in in the in the history has been. Um, it's it's a totalitarian thing, uh, you know, totalitarian system, you know. But since there are many people which remember that, and they they kind of are choosing to remember the only the good, you know, they. They ignore the bad things about that, and uh, many people have been, you know, happy throughout communism. I think because uh, communism, on the other hand, allows you to have less responsibility, less responsibility for your life, for your family. You know, once the once the government, once the society, once the state dictates you your life, it can be. More of uh, you know, uh, it can be good for uh, for some people. They have yeah. less responsibility. They they are just following in the in the steps that the government already you know chose for them. And I think it's still a thing nowadays in all uh, post-communist countries around us. You know, in especially in the Eastern Europe. You know, uh, I think we can see this kind of thing. So um, to to put that into perspective of uh, of the COVID, I th actually think it was the same as elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. Some people some people have been really uh, really outspoken about this issue. They they have been um, more inclined to freedom, and some people just chose to follow the mainstream narrative. You know, but I think. We need to consider the the all sides of things. It's okay to follow the mainstream narrative. I think it's okay to protect yourself, you know, but it's also okay to raise the questions, you know, about the loss of freedom, the loss of liberty. And if you yeah. if you choose to not follow the the mainstream narrative, I think you should be allowed to do that. I don't think silencing this opposition and monopolizing the 
the communication and information in the state is the correct way. And that's why we see so many problems nowadays. A another thing has been also, once you raised some kind of questions, you have been immediately labeled as a conspiracy theorist, you know, by the mainstream narrative, by, by all the people around you. I think this, uh, you know, is such a big problem, you know, because um, you can just be for freedom, you know, liberty. Uh, you can just be raising questions, you know, questioning the authority and not be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. But we live in the society, we live, we live in the world where this kind of thing is considered radical and uh, conspirational, basically. And it uh, it doesn't apply only to COVID, but also other socioeconomic problems. Yeah. Yeah, I, you touched on a few important things there. One I, I would like to talk about for a quick second is conspiracy theories. Like, I think this has become a derogatory term, a bad term, when most conspiracy theorists while they can get extreme and believe things that are just obviously not true, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking into things and questioning the main narrative. Um, and it seems like the term conspiracy theorist is has been captured and used as a derogatory term to silence people and keep people in line not questioning things but when you have that then you just have governments and entities running without accountability and and they can just brush you off as a conspiracy theorist but i mean some of the conspiracy theories things that were labeled as conspiracy theories at the beginning of covid or during covid turned out to be true like like the virus being coming from a lab, leaking from a lab in the, the Wuhan lab, like that seems like the most plausible source of it at this point, you know? And it was plausible at the beginning, but people who were suggesting that were called conspiracy theorists. And then people who questioned in the US, we had two weeks to uh, slow the curve or something like that. And people were doubting that it was going to be two weeks. People believed that it was going to be longer. And they were labeled conspiracy theorists. And the reality is they were just sensible people that understand government doesn't government doesn't relinquish power once you give it to it. Like government, it's it's not in the nature of government to say, okay, thanks for giving us this power. Here you go, here's it back. And that actually ties into co uh communism a little bit because some people believe that communism has never actually come to fruition because they believe that true communism is when there's this point in communism that the state is no longer needed and that one day the state will just relinquish control to the citizens and and then you have this communist utopia with no government anymore because it's not needed and i think it's kind of an asinine uh theory it, it's it's fantasy in my opinion to believe that any government is one day gonna say 
hey, we're no longer needed. You guys, you can handle this all on your own. You got it. The reality is like government is a business, right? Like they have careers, they have paychecks that they're generating from it. They have perks that they get from running the government, from being in these positions of power. And it's nonsensical to believe that one day in any system, whether it be communism, capitalism, whatever, it's nonsensical to believe that the government will relinquish its power. That's why representative democracies are so important, because people need a, a say in how things happen. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. It's, it's a wishful thinking, ex exactly like you said. And it looks like almost that you read my book because this is, this, this is the kind of thing that I also mention in one of the chapters about communism and capitalism. This is exactly what, uh, what I basically said. Uh, the book is still in Slovak, so that's not, uh, you know, there is no way that you read it. But <laughs> yeah, you know, I just wanted to return a little back. Um, someone, someone said, you know, that it's been a popular person, maybe past American president, I, I don't know, but there is uh, nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it also applies to COVID. It also applies to other government programs, but to, uh, to go uh, to communism. Yes, exactly. There, you know, I don't know why people are so naive as to think that these new uh, leaders, or these new communist leaders, would just relinquish their new power. Just like that, you know, it hasn't happened throughout history. It, it will never happen. Once you put people in such a position with so, so much power, they are not going to uh, give it up. You know, uh, Stalin yeah. didn't, Lenin didn't, you know, nobody will. But uh, it's also true that communist, uh, communist thinkers and enthusiasts are saying that the real communism hasn't been attained until now. I think that's true because um, Karl Marx was teaching the same thing. The, the only real communism would be without the state, uh, without yeah. the classes. Uh, it would be a beautiful, beautiful world to live in. You know, people would just work for the sake of working. They would... Uh, they would do many, many things, you know, like uh, fish in the in the morning, uh, hunt in the afternoon, and be thinkers in the evening. You know, this this was, you know, without any class wars, without any uh, struggles. This is utopian at best. You know, this is just utopia. Yeah, and um, there have been some, um, you know. You know, people have been trying to achieve this communism, I think, but it, it is always bound to fail because in the, uh, you know, on the way to real communism, you just get, you just get, uh, you just get socialism, you just get totalitarianism, you just get oppression of civil liberties, uh, you know, human rights. And this is the kind of, you know, thing that we want to to impoverish the world, to, to kill millions, millions of people to achieve the real communism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the problems with the utopian thinking, because yeah. if, you're, if you truly 
believe, and I don't, I don't actually think that everyone that supports communism believe believes the utopia is possible. I think there's some people just want the control and want to be at the head of a certain political movement. And then I think there are mostly the masses that believe communism is good. They're fooled into thinking that the utopia is somehow possible. And the problem with utopian thinking is when you're pursuing something that you see as like some kind of paradise, some utopia, that's when anything is on the table for achieving it. And that's why you see so much destruction along the way because they justify it it's it's the end justifies the means kind of a machiavellian mindset of yeah i know people are going to die now but it's going to be so much better once we get there but the problem is that never comes the end never comes so all you have is the destruction on the way to a fantasy that can never be realized Exactly. Like Stalin said, it doesn't matter how many eggs you break, you know, as long as we achieve our end. It doesn't matter how many millions uh, will die as long as we achieve our end. Yeah. And like you said, uh, this, this utopian end can never be achieved because we live in the world of uh, limitations, limited resources, you know, limited scarce resources. The... Uh, you know, limited time, limited knowledge, limited human lo- knowledge. You know, there is no yeah. way that a person or a group of persons, you know, gr- group of people can know everything about the whole economy, about the whole world. This kind of thinking, I think, originated uh, many hundred years ago and it's been culminated also um in in French Revolution, in one of those other more radical groups, you know, they have been trying to achieve the ideal solution, the ideal perfect world, and this uh, this can never happen because our world that we live in is not ideal. Uh, it can never be, you know. There are only trade-offs. There are no final solutions, and um, you know, Friedrich August von Hayek uh, called this the fatal conceit. You know, some people are so conceited, so ignorant and so arrogant that they think they know just better. They know better. They know what's best for you and me, for the whole society. The problem Mm -hmm. is that this kind of people get on top sometimes, you know, and uh, and, uh, somehow get uh, the... uh, gets to their side, you know, other citizens, like what happened, you know, in communist Russia, you know, with Bolsheviks and uh, what happened also in Nazi Germany. Yeah, there's a, one of those limiting factors is human nature. There's a natural tendency toward corruption with humans to at least some degree. Like if, if you're in a position of power and you can be so a little bit of extra benefit on a friend or a family member, a lot of people, it's it's very tempting to do that. And the more power you have, the more favors you can do for yourself or for family and friends. And it, that's just human nature. Like, that's why 
things like the U.S. Constitution are meant to put restrictions on government. They're not power-giving documents. They're power-restricting documents. You know, that's the ideal kind of constitution is something that restricts power. And another thing with human nature is you mentioned not having to make decisions or not being responsible for your decisions as far as people who who look positively on communism. And I think it doesn't matter if your situation is worse or better. If it's a bit worse, still the fact that you don't have to take responsibility for those decisions, you might be hungry, you might not be in good conditions, but the fact that it's not your fault has this tendency to be considered a positive thing in people's perspectives like yeah i'm i'm hungry we can have more things could be better but none of this is my fault versus in a in a free market in a capitalist society you have more freedom you have more ability to influence your own conditions and if you're in that same condition or even a little bit better of a condition than you would be in a communist um system a little bit a bit more of that responsibility falls on your own head and that's a little harder to take for people like for you to be in a bad position and not not be able to blame somebody else quite easily that's i think a hard thing for people to handle definitely definitely uh i agree with everything you just said um and that it is it's a big problem because People by nature, you know, um, are bound to be responsible for themselves, for their families and for their communities, you know. But many, many people are just looking for the state, for the government to take care of for them, you know, to take care of their families, of them. And that was one of the things that many people view positively about communism because, yes, they, they were miserable. They were miserable, they were poor, but they could say that this is not my fault. You know, this this is just how the system works, you know. But once you have more capitalistic society, more free market, you have more responsibility for you. And it's uh, it's a very, very difficult thing to to grasp and to to get over with, like you said, exactly. That's why I think um, you know one of one of the greatest uh, sociolo- sociologist thinkers, Emil Durkheim, uh, in the in the nineteenth century and uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century, studied the modern industrialist countries at that time. You know, they have they they were all more or less free market, more more or less capitalist mm-hmm. societies. He found that in these societies there have been more uh, more cases of suicide, more cases of miserability than in the societies that were not industrial, that were not capitalist. You know, um, many because in free market capitalism you can see how uh, almost everybody is doing better than you, but you know it's most of the time it's just an illusion. But some people don't know that uh, the lives of their neighbors, the, the lives of their friends, aren't that good. They are just presenting the, 
they are doing good, they are successful. But the problem is that, you know, people are so affected by this. They, they see success all around them and they can't take that they are doing relatively uh, worse than their friends and uh, other people. So, like you said, in, in more capitalistic society, you have more responsibility for you, for your life, for your family. And in more communist, more restrictive societies, you have less of this responsibility but you you have to realize we have to realize what is better is it better to live in a totalitarian society where where the government plans out the whole life for you or is it better to live with more responsibility in more free society the the, the choice is pretty obvious for me yeah same here um could you explain a little bit about what Austrian economics is. We mentioned it a few times, but uh, can you explain for anyone that might not be familiar, what is Austrian economics? What is Keynesian economics? What do most people experience in the world? Um, yeah, explain a little bit about those and, and maybe a little bit about your personal philosophy. Yes, okay. So the Austrian School of Economics um, is considered pretty radical nowadays because mainly because it advocates for free market, for you know personal liberty and and such. I won't get into the the technical details of this school, like their preferred uh, method, you know, scientific method, which is more grounded in theoretical knowledge. But the Austrian School of Economics. I think is far superior to all the other schools of economics that are out there. Um, it's just uh, it's just so consistent, so so clear to to grasp to grasp the economic principles and workings of the market. It's uh, it's really the best in my opinion. But nowadays, the the Keynesian school of economics prevails. You know, it's uh, it's considered more of the mainstream. And basically, Keynesian economics are uh, called after Keynes, you know, that, uh, you know, one of the greatest economics thinkers of all time. Uh, it's basically uh, the, the interventionist policies into the workings of the free market. And this also, you know, like, like we talked about, governments like to think that they know best and they have the tools to hamper with the free market through through central bank through setting uh, of uh, interest rates through printing money through regulations through uh, tariffs taxes and so on so basically austrian school of economics opposes all this because it believes that we can achieve the prosperity uh, the rise of wealth through free market and not interventionist policies and that's basically the what differentiates austrian school of economics from the mainstream school of economics which is heavily influenced by keynesian policies you know nowadays uh, nowadays all the economists that get attention are basically mainstream you know they advocate for more interventions uh, from the side of government and uh, I think that's why they get the attention. You know, they are politically correct. It's not political correct to uh, to advocate for less government because 
yeah. you are considered yeah. as a radical, that you want an anarchy. So that's why the Austrian School of Economics is uh, so ridiculed, I would say. And uh, uh, yeah, I got into the Austrian School of Economics um, when I when I was studying you know, at college in one of my classes called Economic Sociology. I stumbled upon Friedrich August von Hayek. I you know I bought uh, I bought his books, also books from Ludwig von Mises and other Austrian you know thinkers and economists, and I I learned that. Um, there is some uh, some additional alternatives to the mainstream narrative, basically. Yeah, and I think uh, I think these these principles should uh, should be more known to general population, because once once the general population uh, knows about these basic economic principles, I think they are less uh, less apt to believe. What the government is saying, you know, we I, I don't think we need uh, we need uh, central planning in the in the monetary sphere, you know. But the reality is that every country has a central bank. Central bank chooses arbitrarily uh, the interest rates. It it messes up the price system, and and basically uh, the Austrian School of Economics advocates that there be no central banks and uh, that we should leave free market alone and free market has self-corrective mechanisms basically so that's the main thing that differentiates austrian school of economics from from nowadays the mainstream school so it seems like bitcoin people that support bitcoin are more aligned with Austrian economics because they want something that has a fixed supply and they don't like the printing. And in my opinion, central banks are horrible for the world. One of the reasons that we see so much war and one of the things that I believe enables war is the fact that governments can print money from thin air, they can print more money because war is not profitable. And the broken window paradox or parable, where it's to kind of show that war is not profitable, but do Keynesian economists believe that war is profitable? Uh, some of them certainly do. You know, once such a such a catastrophe happens, uh, you can you can count on some people advocating for this. The broken window parable, the fallacy. They they will say that the war and the war and also some natural catastrophes, disasters will create maybe some some jobs and uh, and so on, which is totally not true, you know. Because these new jobs and new opportunities, you know, they you know we live in a world of limited resources, scarce resources, and once you use these resources. In the sphere of war, of waging war and killing people and manufacturing weapons, tanks, and so on, and destroying all these resources along the way, you know, um, you basically grab these resources from the other spheres of the economy where they cannot be utilized. They have been they have been destroyed. They have been destroyed in war and and so on. 
So let's uh, let's just get into more details. Bastiat, a French economist in the 19th century, pointed uh, very clearly to this fallacy. You know, there there have been there have been some boy who destroyed window on the street, and uh, some people were saying that oh that's good because the uh, the person that fixes this window will get money. And many many people are agreeing with this type of thinking because uh, if the if the window wasn't broken hasn't been broken, then uh, maybe the owner of this shop of this window uh, would would keep the money for himself. They uh, you know yeah. people believe that money needs to be spent immediately. Uh, that's what the uh, that's what keeps the economy afloat. But we need to uh, we need to look at the value of this money. You know the value of this money that uh, this money brings to this shop owner. You know uh, he could have used this money in uh, other alternative ways. You know he could buy himself a coat or new shoes. And because of the window, if because of the broken window, he doesn't have new shoes. He doesn't have new coats. He only has the window that hasn't been broken before. Was broken. And needs to be repaired. This is the yeah. same with war. This is the same with catastrophe, natural disasters, and such. When you get, when you have financial, international help, you know, or human humanitarian help to to countries that have been struck with disasters, this these resources come from somewhere. You know, you 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 can just magically print uh, real resources, only money. And money is just paper that you buy the real resources with and then you get price inflation, basically. So the broken window fallacy, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bullshit. Yeah, to to go further into that, so a kid breaks a window and what I guess the Keynesian economists would believe is stimulating the economy because the person who fixes the window has work to do. But in reality, there's time. That work being done on the window is work that could have been done somewhere else. So that person fixing the window could have been putting a brand new window on a an extension of somebody's house that they're building. Um, and it's also short term. Like, let's say that that person wouldn't have a job that day without that window being broken. Well, you. It's short-term thinking to believe that that window being broken is what is needed for him to have a job or him or her to have a job because when you zoom out a little bit, the market will adjust for things. So like if there's not a lot of windows being broken, you know, not a lot of war as the um, parallel to that, if there's not a lot of windows being broken, the market adjusts and that person who would be fixing the window might develop a different specialty. So there, or other people who fix windows would develop other specialties. So there's less competition for the window repair. And then that person can maintain their lifestyle fixing the windows remaining that, because windows are going to sometimes break, you know? There are things that need to be prepared or uh, repaired. Um, so, yeah, with that, I I think it's just short sighted to believe that 
you need the window to be broken to stimulate the economy. I I agree completely that it's bullshit. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, you brought uh, short-term and long-term thinking because uh, you you always have to have in mind short-term consequences of your actions and also long-term consequences. The whole Keynesian uh, economics and uh, Keynesian policies are based on short-term thinking. You know how how we stimulate the economy in the short term. You know basically and ignoring the long-term consequences. Keynes himself, you know, um, in the 20th century, he said that um, forget about the long term. You know, we have we have economic slowdown now. We have we have re- recession now, like uh, in in the 30s. You know, when the Great Depression happened. But the problem with this type of thinking is that nowadays we are bearing the consequences of their short-term policies. Yeah. So where, where do we draw the line be- between short-term and long-term? Because short-term can easily become long-term in just the span of three years. Yeah. Before three years, three years ago, uh, the government chose uh, short-term thinking, you know, Keynesian policies, stimulating the demand. But long-term really, really happened uh, quickly. And uh, in 2022, 2023, we have been experiencing price inflation, uh, restriction of the supply. Supply just couldn't catch uh, the stimulated demand. Uh, there have been many, many bubbles uh, throughout the whole economy. And uh, it's, it's really a miracle that the economy is so resilient because many, many economists have been saying that um, this, this couldn't last. But the economy nowadays is more resilient than we thought. So, yeah. But it's, uh, it shouldn't come as a solution for this type of uh, thing. Uh, the Keynesian policies are always wrong. And sometimes even in the short term, because they bring about undesired consequences in the eyes of the very same people that chose them. That, uh, that applies to uh, price fixation, that applies to tariffs, uh, protectionism, and uh, all the other interventionist policies, basically. Yeah, because yeah. Let's, let's just take an example from Hungary. Hungary uh, chose to impose a price ceiling you know, fixation of the price of uh, gasoline. So, uh, so people, uh, you know, this stimulated the demand because once you are buying something for the lower price than is the market price, you know, the market price would be higher. But the government chose the lower price, and uh, Hungary felt uh, the the consequences of this because there have been um, limited supply of gasoline, of course. And people just uh, uh, were kind of using this. And uh, then uh, people realized that there is not enough gas for them. Yeah. So this is uh, undesired, uh, undesired consequence in the very eyes of the very same people that chose this. They didn't, they didn't want that, you know. They wanted uh, for the people to, to have a better life, to, to have uh, a less pricey gasoline. You know, but what happened is that the gasoline ran out, and there is uh, there is no enough, not enough gas in Hungary. At least it wasn't uh, last year, around this time. 
Yeah, it's it's an important point that often the interventions that governments take are inadequate or completely off the mark. Um, they often just miss completely because there's more variables. You know, they're usually trying to attack one variable in a in a problem when it's a multifaceted problem, and you're just not gonna fix a problem only focusing on one aspect and not taking into consideration everything else that's going on. So to go back a little bit to the Austrian school, Austrian economists believe that there should be something backing the currency, something uh, fixed, correct? Uh, yes, basically. They advocate for... Um, for Preferably the gold-backed currency, because gold uh, has been chosen as the primary money throughout throughout the history for the past five thousand years, and it was only governments in the twentieth and nineteenth centuries that abolished uh, abolished the gold as money. You know, in the twentieth yeah. century, money nowadays is just uh, is just paper. Uh, it's just money because the government said so. Even though central banks have some reserves of gold, uh, th this is not enough gold to back the currency by, by any means. Yeah. So, yeah, either gold and uh, in, the past, in the past year also Bitcoin has, has become uh, quite popular. Bitcoin, you know, there are some, some economists that believe that we need to have something hard, something tangible like gold. It's been called sound money because gold, when you uh, smash gold uh, on, on something, it makes sound. It was sound money. Yeah. So yeah. some economists don't believe that Bitcoin should be sound money because basically it exists only, only on servers or, or something like that. You know, it, you, you can't touch that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. For example, uh, for example, uh, Peter Schiff, uh, prominent Austrian thinker, economist, and investor, is saying the same thing. Money uh, should have more uses than than just money. You can, if you don't want to uh, pay with gold as money, you can you can choose other alternative uses for that. You know, it it gets used in jewelry, uh, industrial uses, and and so on. You know, so his. So his main concern, and for people like him, their main concern is that Bitcoin doesn't have these kind of uses, alternative use for Bitcoin, let's say. Yeah, it's just a question of uh, uh, could Bitcoin be used for something else than just money, I would say. I think Bitcoin does have some drawbacks to it. The physical aspect can be a positive and a negative. Like if you have to flee your country and you have a bunch of gold, it's going to be really hard to get out of the country with a bunch of gold. But if you have Bitcoin, you can remember your seed phrase and go somewhere else with the internet and have your money. So there is a benefit to the digital aspect. I had a former coworker we were working for a software company and he he didn't like the idea of bitcoin and he said it's not real and i thought it was a really interesting take because i'm like 
we work for a software company. It's as real as the software you support. It is software. Like, it's code. That's all we're working for. We're working for a company that has a product that's just code. It's, that's all it is. It's not something physical. And uh, I just thought it was interesting that somebody who works for a software company wouldn't recognize the parallel between Bitcoin and the software that he supports, you know? Do you have a personal view on Bitcoin at all? Uh, Yes, but since I don't know many, many technical details about this kind of thing, I'm not sure that my my view is the correct one because I tend to incline more to the views of Peter Schiff and other uh, and other people about Bitcoin because maybe it's because I I know too little details about Bitcoin itself. I maybe I don't know yeah. how how exactly it uh, it works. I tried to learn about this, you know. Um, I think I I. I know about like 90% of its workings, but I also understand the concern of uh, other other people like Peter Schiff, that it's uh, it's not something that you can touch. You know, the, maybe the best, um, the main, the main argument of, uh, of, the, uh, of Peter Schiff is like, uh, once you shut down the internet or something like that, where, where do you have that Bitcoin? Is it is it in your yeah. wallet, like like gold can be? Is it in your vault? You know what can you do with Bitcoin once the internet gets shut down or something like that? You know, it's a valid, a very valid argument. I've heard somebody make an argument still in favor of it, of it having some utility in that case, but I can't remember what it is. I think the best thing to do is to have a little bit of both, right? Like to have some gold, have some silver, whatever you want to have, and to have Bitcoin, you know, like it's always good to diversify your portfolio. And yeah, you you want to cover your bases for everything. But regardless of what your view on Bitcoin is, I think I think fiat is fiat money, central banking is just horrible. Like if you take if you have a nation who is looking at the prospect of going to war and they all their currency is in physical gold and they take an honest look of that and say well it's going to take about half of our gold to go into this war that's a lot to give up to go to war but when you have money that can just be printed what they're doing, what governments that go to war and print money for that war are doing is they're still, or so to go back, they have the gold as far as the population is concerned. They're going to have to take the gold from the, the population in the country. But if they're just printing the money, what they're going to do is they're still going to take the gold from you, take the money from you ultimately. They just do it later. They're printing money now, and then they're charging you for it with inflation over the coming years. So the people of the nation are paying for the war either way. And it, I see inflation as essentially theft from people. And 
one of the things about inflation is it screws over poor people more than anybody. Like the people who hurt from inflation, monetary inflation, are poor people. Like the people who own houses, own a lot of property, own a lot of physical assets, they do just fine when there's high inflation because all of their assets rise like those prices get inflated. So if you own, you know, a, an apartment complex or something like that, as inflation goes up, the value of that apartment complex goes up with that inflation. But if you're somebody who wants to save up for a, your first house and all you have is a bank account with money in it, you are trying to climb out of quicksand essentially because the money is devaluing often faster than you can accumulate it. Am I wrong there? Oh, you're totally right. Yeah, that's basically that. Uh, that's basically the case with inflation. Once you have at least some, um, you know, um, some assets, you know, they, the value of these assets like uh, real estate, like maybe gold and also Bitcoin and uh other non-monetary assets that you can have, you know, the value of these assets rises uh, when there is price inflation. Whereas the value of your money, uh, you know, the value of the money diminishes, you know. And uh, when you get, uh, you know, the more you are poorer, the less assets you own, basically. You, you, you just own cash. You, you just own your bank account, you know. And the value of these kind of things uh, just diminishes very, very quickly. Whereas the, the, the more richer you get, uh, you maybe own more houses, more, you have more options to hedge against inflation, basically. That's why inflation is such a big socioeconomic problem. And I, I, think, so, I think media should be covering this and uh, speaking about this more. You know, it's... Is just so devastating for the poor people, whereas the rich people can sometimes benefit with price inflation. Yeah. yeah. So you are completely right. And I would just like to return uh, to what you were saying about war and printing money. You know, exactly. The American senator, Ron Paul, said that, you know, it is no co coincidence that the century of total war coincided with the century of where central banks were created. You know, central banks can print money. Government can use this new printed money to go to war. You know, and the war lasts more than it should last, basically. Well, they're charging your children for the war, right? Like if you have children, they're charging your future self and future generations for the war that they want to have right now. Exactly. Uh, once you choose short-term thinking, short-term policies, your kids will pay the price. Basically, governments nowadays want to uh, want to uh, you know tend to their citizens' votes. You know They're, they want to grab votes. They promise uh, they, they promise all kinds of things. You know uh, higher pensions, higher uh, social security, and uh, more of this stuff. And for this, you know, it, it prints money and there's going to be price inflation, you know, and 
also the debt accumulates rapidly and who is going to pay off this debt many economists are saying that it's not a big issue but i think uh, it's it's a big issue yeah definitely because there is going to be someone that needs to pay off the current debt why why should the government choose to tax the people if the debt doesn't matter you know if if the debt yeah. doesn't matter then don't tax the people just print the money basically yeah and in the us I, i'm sure it's probably similar in uh, in the european union but in the us a lot of people don't actually know what their taxes are used for they think that Okay, so we have a social program and your taxes are paying for the social program, but what taxes are actually paying for is the government borrows money from the Fed and then the taxes go to pay off just the interest on that uh on the money that they're taking out. They're not even trying to pay down the principal at all. So they're basically relying on an ever-growing pile of debt like the pile of debt just keeps growing bigger and in the US I think this year we almost defaulted on that meaning that we weren't going to be able to pay all the interest and then what they do is they essentially kind of refinance to a certain degree they they change the terms a little bit so that they can pay off the interest but eventually the interest is just going to keep rising because the principal keeps rising So the only way that they can continue paying off the interest on that is to somehow take more money from people. So they're going to have to raise taxes continuously through the years to maintain this bullshit system essentially. And eventually eventually I think the end result of all fiat money is zero. Like the the German mark is a great example of what happens to fiat money. And the current system is built to prop up itself, the the current system. So they try to make it seem like everything is okay, but I don't think the reality aligns with that. I think it's a, a house of cards that eventually falls down. Oh, definitely. definitely the current system is uh, reliant on debt basically you know the 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 world economy is reliant on ever more debt basically yeah and uh, for that let's take uh, us the us as an example you know the us needs uh, as as low interest rates as possible to be able to paying off the debt basically if the if the interest if yeah. the interest rates rise then it's becoming more more difficult to pay off this debt basically yeah it can get to a point yeah. where uh it defaults you know and the currency becomes worthless that's that that would be really really horrible thing for not only americans but for the whole world i think everyone that is holding american debt would you know it's it would become worthless it's a, it's a really the house of cards as as you said basically and taxes are just a check on price inflation you know uh, the governments and central banks cannot afford to just print uh, infinitely you know there needs to be some point where 
they just cannot do that or the or the currency becomes worthless and uh, every fiat currency in uh, in the past has indeed become worthless in some point of time basically dollar has been very resilient i think because of uh, because the us is like a superpower you know the the, the military you know the, the us military is the biggest thing in the world they they really can say that we are we are the best we can say the dollar is backed by uh military power of the us i i think i would agree with that yeah, yeah. and oil to some degree yeah. like uh we force we we have oil contracts we have other uh countries convert their their currency to us dollars to buy oil and that that system is currently at risk too like there are other countries that are challenging that china russia um they're they're challenging that to have oil contracts be able to be in their currency in the un i think is chinese currency and yeah i mean it's it's backed by military might and I think that only gets you so far. I mean, people have short-term memories, but like the US dollar isn't hasn't been in place since the US became the US. Like we've had other currencies in the US and all of those failed too. Exactly. Uh it can get you only so far. Yeah, like like you said, and this system is currently at risk. Because there are many countries that uh, that that are now realizing that this system is not the most beneficial to them, you know, they are trying to uh, shake off their dollars, you know, they are trying to find alternative ways to engage in the world trade, and I think these kind of pressures will become a real threat to the U.S. I, I would say. Yeah, because once you once enough people in the world decide that they they don't want to hold the dollars, the US cannot do anything. I, I I think when we get to this point, uh, not even military power would uh, would stop this. Uh, I would say, but uh, we we need to realize that um, this is not uh, this is not uh, easy because the uh, these kind of things tend to tend to uh, stick. You know. So I think uh, it would take such a such a big radical shock to to get to this point, basically. Yeah, and I think uh, you see certain countries adopting things like Bitcoin or wanting to go to like a gold reserve or a gold-backed currency. Um, you see that in El Salvador, Argentina just elected a somebody who seems to be more in line with that and it'll be interesting to see things play out over the coming years so are you familiar with the fourth turning at all the the fourth uh, turning uh, I, i'm not sure i'm not sure what you mean yeah so there uh i can't remember the author's names one of them is no longer alive and the other is still they are generational they they study generations and there are 
cycles of history that they believe repeat themselves. And there's four turnings in each cycle. And we're currently, according to their theory, in the fourth turning right now. So if you look at, they, they kind of focus on U.S. history, but it affects the whole world too. So if you look at uh, it, it's basically, I'm not going to like repeat this in, in the best way possible, but it's generational in the sense that we lose the wisdom of prior generations at a certain point. Like the people who fought in World War II, there's very few of them left anymore. You know, my grandfather fought in World War II. Like he's gone. He, was, he died 10 years ago now. And most people of that generation, the people who fought in that war, the people who understand what a world war is like are mostly gone at this point, um, except for like a few remaining people. And if you look at the history of the U.S., 1776 was the American Revolution. So that was a major war. If you move forward another 80 years, you have the Civil War in the U.S., another major war. If you move forward another 80 years, you have World War II. Then if you move forward another 80 years, you're today. It's what's going on right now. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a war, but there's some major event, according to that theory, that something major is going to happen in the world to completely change how things are, disrupt the order, make things... There's going to be a crisis. It's a crisis. It could be a war. It could be a financial crisis, a major financial crisis. They, they said that, um, I think Neil Howe is the one who's living. And he basically said that the 2008 financial crisis wasn't the fourth turning. That wasn't quite what it is. It was a precursor to it. But it makes me wonder if, you know, we are about to see a global war, something major that is going to shake up the system. And I really don't like war. I think it's a horrible thing. It's one of the worst things humans engage in. So I'd prefer not to see a war. But if you look at geopolitics right now, it, it kind of looks like that's where things are headed, unfortunately. But you never, you've never heard of that fourth turning? Uh, actually, uh, something comes to my mind, uh, actually, about about this, but not specifically as to these specific uh, things that happened. So, yeah, it makes a lot of yeah. sense. It makes a lot of sense. And when you look uh, nowadays at, uh, at, the, at the current situation, I'm kind of surprised myself that there hasn't already been some kind of a major thing. So I think uh, there is a higher probability that something will happen. Yeah. You know, yeah. Some, some months ago, you know, last year, I thought that uh, in 2023, we would have a big global recession, which, which didn't happen, basically. So I'm still surprised that uh, things are kind of still working out, even though poorly. But I think... You know, th this can stop in in any time. Some some major thing can happen that will influence uh, 
all the all the other things. Same same yeah. with uh, uh, with the current war in Ukraine. You know, I don't think I don't think many people uh, were expecting this. The majority of people, yeah. you know, were were taken by surprise that this happened. So I think that this kind of thing can happen again. Yeah, for sure. You border Ukraine in Slovakia. So what has that been like? Um, what are the repercussions that neighboring countries are, are seeing? I mean, obviously you are probably seeing uh, goods and supplies be a little bit less or a little bit harder to find. Um, Ukraine is considered the breadbasket of the world. Um, they're a major exporter of grain. What is that like being in Slovakia right next to Ukraine? Um, basically, the, the main thing that changed uh, is that you can see more and more Ukrainians uh, in Slovakia nowadays. But concerning the, the food supply, I, I wouldn't say that, um, that we are like, you know, feeling the consequences of this kind of thing. You know, of course, the price inflation and the restriction of, uh, uh, of grain, you know, is, is felt throughout the world and also in our country. But uh, other than that, it just feels normal, I would say. Mm. So when you, you know, yeah. of course, there, there are more discussions about this kind of things, about uh, helping, whether to help or not in Ukraine. But other than that, life moves on, I would say. Yeah. With healthcare, the US healthcare system is jacked up like we we need something different and there are i don't know the answer to what we need i'm very skeptical of relying on government to solve things i don't trust government at all and i think when you give government power it tends to make things worse i mean sometimes it can make things better in certain regards i'm not going to deny that but you guys are on like a universal healthcare system right yes that's that's true. Most things are state owned. Um, how does that work out? What are the benefits that you see, and what are the the negative aspects to that? Well, it's it's really hard to point to benefits of these kind of systems because hmm. once you have universal uh, healthcare, once you have uh, the state providing for for healthcare, you get less of of the services. You know, the healthcare may be uh, less, less less expensive than it would be on free market. That's true in short term. But uh, you just get less and uh, worse qualities of services, basically. I think it's just, you know, healthcare is just so complicated or, or it, uh, you know, it portrays itself as complicated because of the state involvement. Yeah. Uh, but I would, uh, I would, Totally, totally suggest less state, less government intervention into the healthcare, more free market providers. And even though this kind of thing would jack up the prices in the short term on free market, because everybody would be trying to get rich quick, in the long term, the, the competition process would work, would totally work and bring the prices down, actually. And uh, we would, in the long term, we would have uh, even less expensive healthcare than is nowadays, and uh, of more quality services, basically. 
this I think applies also to the US, to the all the other countries in the world. Yeah. Are, are there like long lines, um, wait times to get healthcare? Uh, oh yeah, totally, totally. Uh, you know, once you sign up for for a surgery or some kind of other procedure, basically. Uh, on average, you need to wait weeks and months to get the treatment that you need. There are long terms, uh, long wait times, and just basically short supply of doctors, nurses. Once the state involves in in healthcare, it messes up the price system of all the all the things and wages and uh, all the other prices. You know, uh, basically Slovakia, um, you know, twenty. 20% of Slovakian doctors are practicing abroad, which is like a big number and one of the highest numbers in OECD countries, you know. Um, and why? Because if they practice in Slovakia, they would meet with less wages, lower wages, lower quality of equipment. Uh, the, the hospitals, the buildings are old, you know, um, bad looking and, and so on. So, yeah. Uh, I would say that uh, it would take uh, a big reform to change things, and basically more more free market, of course. Yeah, in the U.S., we have. I don't want to call healthcare a free market in the U.S. I don't think it is. I think in the U.S., we have insurance companies have way too much power and influence over our healthcare, and I think it's not for the best. Like. If I'm going to a doctor just for a checkup, that should be between me and my doctor, not a health insurance provider. Like insurance to me is like you're paying a little bit of money for insurance for when things get expensive and out of control so that you're not left with hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay in in healthcare costs. Not for fixing the price for like a simple doctor visit or a dentist visit. Like I think I think they just make everything more expensive at that point, but I don't have the answers on it. I, I, I'm very open to. Yeah. I want to, you know, talk to other people who understand the U.S. healthcare industry and have answers because I think it's a major problem for the U.S. Like in the U.S., you can have a medical issue and it can destroy you financially if you're not covered, and I think that's. It's horrible. Like I don't think relying on the government to fix everything is going to be the answer, but what we currently have is definitely not ideal. So I just was curious on your opinion on how things work in Slovakia. So I appreciate the insights there. Uh, exactly. You know, look, uh, relying on government is what brought us here. You know, uh, yeah. what started all this all this mess. Uh, at the beginning, there was a belief that healthcare should be a human right, basically. Yeah. Uh, there have been some kind of uh, high-minded rhetoric, you know, uh, empty gestures. And uh, now governments portray themselves as, uh, as guardians of this human right, right for yeah. uh, healthcare, basically. But, uh, you know, healthcare, like all the other things in the society, in the economy, it's it's scarce, you know. It's limited. The the doctors yeah. are limited. The nurses are limited. All the the equipment is li is limited. So therefore, it needs to be paid for. 
we need to pay for the services of our fellow citizens, you know, we need to pay for medicine and so on. But uh, many people don't like this, you know, and that's when the government comes. It says to people, hey, uh, don't worry, we will take care for you, we will take care of you, we will pay for it, you know. Okay, people people will say, okay, that's that sounds good, that sounds fine. Uh, what what would it take? Well, it would take that the government would be a sole provider of healthcare, would would manage all the uh, all the healthcare providers, insurance companies, and so on. And I'm I'm not the uh, the all knowing person. I I'm not saying that my suggestions would hundred uh, percent help. But exactly the thing that is nowadays so popular, uh, relying on government, is what brought us here. So why not, why not change that and try more free market approach uh, to this kind of thing? And uh, basically it's the same uh, in Slovakia as in the US, with the main exception that we don't pay uh, such high prices, of course. Of course not. But... Um, you know, but we have more, uh, we have worse quality of services. We have uh, higher short time or wait times, longer wait times. And uh, we just pay for this kind of thing uh, through different way, basically. Yeah. And for example, in Slovakia, you have only three insurance companies. You know, one is state owned, two other are privately owned. And three companies for the whole Healthcare system is just uh, too, uh, it's just not enough. They are, they are acting like monopolies and it's not, it's not good. What would help is to bring more competition in the market for healthcare, for sure. Allow, allow other healthcare providers to provide healthcare, you know, to provide services and uh, see, see if this will help, basically. Yeah. And in the US, I know it's, uh, it's, it's really hard to say because I wouldn't say that you guys have like free market in healthcare, even though, even though people are saying that in the US you have free market in healthcare, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so because there is so, so much government involvement in this sphere that it's just, it's, we cannot call that uh, fr free market basically. Yeah. And when you, when you look at Medicaid, Medicare, those are government programs, basically. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Dominic, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Before we wrap up, will you give listeners a way to reach you on social media and follow you and anything else you want to share before we end the recording? Yeah, so uh, it's, been, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, your your podcast is amazing. You know, you ask really good questions. You are you are very well prepared. So I appreciate that. So thank you, thank you for having me. You know, I have an Instagram account uh, called uh, Prax Econ, P R A X E C O N. So uh, I'm trying to be more active, but you know, life happens, and sometimes I'm just not uh, active on there. But I I'm replying to messages. Um, and also in the upcoming months, I will be trying to translate my book, which is still in only Slovak. I'm trying to translate it to English. 
to also offer it uh, on Amazon. So yeah, that's uh, that's basically all from my side. Awesome. Uh, Dominic, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you much as well. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your streaming platform of choice. Your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners. Don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast. It's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at ThoughtfullyMindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless. Thank you.